Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 423, Harrowward, The Lion, The Witch, and The War Hero. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts, and you can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Allison, Michael, and Robert for signing up already. Okay, when we left off, William hired a witch to help him with his rebel problem. And Harroward disguised himself as a potter and infiltrated the Norman camp while William was out hunting. And in the end, a bunch of Normans were slain and Harroward barely escaped with his life thanks to the speedy hooves of his trusty horse, Swallow. And also, as we talked about last episode, that story was a lot to, well, Swallow. And it's understandable if you're feeling a little suspicious at this point. It's certainly true that our sources for these events are imperfect. But at the same time, all our sources are imperfect. And the truth is that seemingly impossible things happen in war all the time. And ultimately, hiring a witch is no stranger than having an astrologer consult for the White House, or William digging up a corpse to boost morale. And even if this story is pure legend, it's a legend that was circulated for centuries, and one that was likely told around campfires during William's reign. The legend of Harroward, true or not, gives us an invaluable window into the culture and beliefs of this time. And there's another thing to consider here about the veracity of these reports. The fog of war. It's well known that even the people fighting in a war don't have a perfect understanding of that same war. They don't know everything that's going on on the other side of a field, let alone in a general's tent, or in an enemy's tent. The phrase fog of war was originally used to describe how decision-making became treacherous, as in the heat of battle, it becomes impossible to have all the necessary facts. But this fog has a knock-on effect on our historic record, because that confusion and uncertainty regarding the precise details results in gaps of our understanding. We even get conflicting accounts, making it impossible to genuinely piece together a singular account of a battle or a war. And while the conditions of war are particularly difficult for this sort of thing, you can actually see this effect in all sorts of places. Memory is a funny thing, especially in stressful situations. And if you want to see how this feels in your own life, think about a particularly bad argument that you've had with a loved one. If you two sat down and wrote down what happened in that argument, I would bet you a lot of money that your accounts wouldn't match up perfectly. You might write down some stuff that your family member left out, and vice versa. You might even have disagreements on what specifically was said, or the timeline of the argument. In some cases, a reader might even think you were describing two different arguments entirely. So if you're a scribe, recording the recollections of participants in a conflict, or if you're like Leofrich the deacon and writing down your own recollections, you would find yourself navigating all of these issues while trying to get down a singular account. Not an easy task. And this is all to say that there are contradictions in the record, because of course there are. It would be weird if there weren't. And one of the big ones for this period involves Edwin and Morcar. Remember those guys? So what were they doing? Well... 
The Gesta, the Liber Aliensis, and version E of the Chronicle tell us that Edwin and Morcar went to Ely, and the Gesta and the Liber say that they were commanding forces on the Isle. So, simple enough. But then the record gets confused. Because Orderic Vitalis says that Morcar was the only brother who went to Ely. And Florence of Worcester might provide an explanation for Edwin's absence, as he tells us that the two of them split up when they rebelled against William, and Edwin traveled to Scotland to seek the support of King Malcolm III. And version D of the Chronicle actually does lend some support for this, because it also records that only Morcar was at Ely. But version D of the Chronicle says that the reason why Morcar was at Ely alone was because while they were on the lamb, Edwin was killed by his own men. So we've got accounts saying that one brother was there and the other one was in Scotland. We've got accounts saying that one brother was there and one brother was in the ground. And we've got accounts that say both brothers were there. Confusing, right? And obviously, all of these accounts can't be true. But there is a narrative that might make sense and might be close to the truth. Maybe. My best guess is that version D just got this one wrong. And Edwin was quite alive, and actually, he and Morcar went to Ely together, like the bulk of the records say they did. And the reason why I feel that way is because if anyone would know who was there, it would be Leofrich the deacon. But I suspect that at some point during the blockade, Edwin left and sought Malcolm's support, which isn't contradicted by Leofrich or version E of the Chronicle, and is actually in line with Florence of Worcester and what will come later from Ordric Vitalis. So, while this is just a guess, it's the best I got for you. And so, that's what we're going with for the sake of having a coherent story. It's also a scenario that seems likely from a strategic standpoint, because the rebellion needed support. And that meant pleading to Scotland, and probably Wales, and maybe even Denmark for help. So that's probably what Edwin was up to, while Harroward, Morcar, and the rest of the rebels continued to hold the Isle of Ely. And that was a task that was getting more and more difficult by the day. Because recently, William's army began moving their blockade lines further in. And based on what Florence of Worcester has to say, it sounds like they got within two miles of the island. And that would be a smart move, because by tightening the blockade, it would be a lot more difficult to sneak out through the fens and attack Norman-occupied settlements. It would also make it a lot harder for supporters to get in. And the first people to fall for this trap were probably the monks of Abingdon. According to the Chronicle of Abingdon, the monks of that abbey took up arms and went to join the gathering resistance against, quote, the enemies of the realm, end quote. Unfortunately, before they reached their comrades, they were captured. And Florence of Worcester adds that Abbot Eldred of Abington was imprisoned and deposed in 1071. So, right about now. So this story tells us that William's defenses were beginning to tighten up. But it also tells us that despite stationing his army around Ely, people were still trying to get in. High-ranked, powerful people. People who even had Jesus on speed dial. And remember... Thanks to William's massacre in the north, England was racked by a famine that was so severe that there were even reports of cannibalism. But Ely remained fertile and verdant. Because, you know, William's goons hadn't yet been able to find a way to cross the fens and burn the crops and slaughter their herds. 
So if you were a hungry refugee, this would have been a choice destination, especially if you wanted a chance for a little payback. So the Normans closing in and tightening the net makes a lot of sense. And there's another reason why the Normans wanted to get closer to the Isle. They were preparing for another attack. And we're told that Hereward knew it was coming. Because of course he did. It's highly likely that he would have had a spy or spies in the Norman camp. It's also not impossible that he did some of that spying himself and that Hereward's bloody Tupperware party was a true story. But that debacle in William's kitchen did make it clear to Hereward that he needed to make a change. You see, the Normans knew what he looked like. And it turned out that wearing a greasy cloak was not an effective way to hide his gorgeous flowing locks and magnificent beard. If Hereward wanted to be a spy, he needed to look like the exact opposite of the English warrior that he was. He needed to look less like Legolas and Gimli and more like Jeff Bezos. So Hereward shaved his head and face, quote, preferring to look bald for a while and forgo his finely styled locks rather than spare his opponents, end quote. And I love that language because it implies that he really didn't want to do it. But he put the cause above his fierce flow. And with that sacrifice made, we're told that Agent Hereward got back to doing what he did best, quote, employing various disguises to encompass the death of enemies and destruction of foes, end quote. And considering that the Liber Aliensis is very clear in describing Hereward and his men as murder machines, going so far as to tell us that, quote, all the king's men and liegemen who have engaged in sword fights with them have perished, end quote, and that their raids and attacks were relentless. Well, I'm guessing that Hereward wasn't the only one who was sneaking out of Ely to carry out assassinations and sabotage missions. Those marshes must have been a terrifying place for the Normans who were stationed there. But they needed to stay put and hold the line. Because behind them, the king was hard at work preparing his attack. And this would be quite the operation. The king had ordered his men to commandeer, quote, absolutely all boats, end quote, along with their boatmen. And he had them gather at Cottenham in Cambridgeshire. It's likely that most of these boats, if not all of them, would have been small, flat-bottomed skiffs, specially designed for traversing marshes. And as those boats were being brought to the meeting spot, the king's men were also ordering other members of the public to gather wood and stone and bring those supplies also to the meeting spot. Because here's the plan. They're going to get all those materials together, and then they're going to use the assembled flotilla to ferry the construction supplies to Aldrith. Is this starting to sound familiar to you? Yeah, even the scribes sound incredulous at what William was doing here, writing, quote, for a second time, he was trying, though in vain, to see if it were possible to cross to the island by an unusual route, end quote. That's basically monk for, are you f***ing kidding me? And we're told that William was ordering his men to use the gathered materials to construct mounds and hillocks for his men to fight upon. And here's the thing. If you're attacking an island and you're building a platform for your infantry to fight upon well, you're going to need a way for those soldiers to actually reach the enemy. So I'm guessing that mound in this case is actually referring to 
you guessed it, a causeway. Welcome to the new plan, same as the old plan. Because as Emperor Palpatine can tell you, the best way to get over the destruction of the first Death Star is to build a second Death Star. Now, in William's defense, he was putting a slight twist on the old plan. He was going to move his army within siege range of the island, and he was going to use some of those materials to construct towers. The idea being that they place ballista and catapults on those works and bombard the English from across the marsh. So this was going to be a fully armed and operational causeway. But overall, it was still remarkably similar to the plan that basically boiled down to, let's throw a bunch of junk and sheep bits into the swamp. And that had failed spectacularly. And actually, this new plan also carried with it a brand new flaw. A thermal exhaust port, if you will. Have you spotted it? By demanding that all the boats and fishermen of the area come to the Norman camp, well, that meant there were now a ton of Englishmen in the Norman camp. And this was a time where Hereward and his followers were putting on disguises and carrying out secret missions. So guess who was piloting a small skiff along with all the other fishermen at Cottenham? Yup, it was our freshly shorn hero, Hereward. And we're told that he loaded up his skiff with materials and ferried them down to the landing spot with, quote, extreme efficiency, end quote. And all day long, he transported supplies to Aldrith, absolutely working his butt off, trying to get as much of the material over there as possible. And then, towards the end of the day, when no one was looking, he set fire to the whole pile. It took only a couple moments, and all the supplies that they worked so hard to gather and transport were engulfed in flames. Some of the men attempted to put out the fire. Others fled in a panic as the flames spread out of control. And were told that, quote, it was entirely burnt, and several men killed and swallowed up in the swamp, end quote. And presumably, Hereward then rode his way back to Ely. When William learned of what happened, and of who did it, he said he wanted the rebel leader to be taken alive. Now, the Gesta and the Liber Aliensis both repeatedly insist that William admired and respected Hereward. And the sources keep insisting that William wanted Hereward taken alive. Basically, pretty much any time Hereward did a daring caper, William appeared shortly thereafter saying, Wow, that guy's cool. Don't kill him. And this almost certainly is a literary flourish intended to elevate Hereward. The scribes are basically saying that even his enemies were overwhelmed with admiration and wanted to spare his life. But I doubt it. And if William really did want Hereward taken alive, I'm guessing it was less about having respect for him and more about wanting to do some truly awful things to him. Either way, though, after the disaster at the supply depot, William ordered that they, quote, set a day and night guard over all their property and operations, end quote. So the Norman advance was slowed, but it wasn't halted. Even worse, Hereward wasn't going to be able to pull off that scheme again. Ely could no longer hold it off. The Normans were coming. Within a day or so, the Normans were fully within sight of the rebels, and also within siege weapon range. Only a short stretch of water separated them from Ely. And there, 
they began to construct their mounds and towers. William had too many soldiers now, and their guards were too well organized. Harroward and his army were not going to be able to pillage and assassinate their way out of this one. They were going to have to fight for the island. And so on Ely, the rebels began to build fortifications and ramparts of their own. I'm guessing that this was a mix of earthen ditches, dikes, and wooden walls. And as they were building, at the same time, the Normans were piling up as much material as they could to create a dry patch of land. Once that was solid-ish, they began to construct towers and siege engines. And remember, these two forces could see each other. So each side must have known exactly what the other side was doing. And in an effort to outpace their enemies, I'm guessing they were working themselves to the point of exhaustion. But finally, after a week of this, the Normans had established their marshy mound and built four wooden towers for their siege weapons. They were, at last, ready to begin the attack. The following morning, as dawn broke, William's army assembled and prepared for battle. And behind them, the old French woman climbed to the top of the tallest tower. Once she reached the pinnacle, she, quote, harangued the isle and its inhabitants, end quote. We're told she ranted and condemned them for their raids and sabotage. Her tirade built in pitch, and she got more and more animated as time went on. And once her diatribe reached the climax, she turned around, lifted her skirts, and bared her ass at the English. Leofrich the deacon understood this to be a spell that was cast by the woman to defeat the rebels. And maybe it was. That was certainly what Ivo had hired her to do. But I suspect that whether or not that spell actually had any magic behind it probably didn't matter. Just having an old lady telling you off like she was your mom and then dropping trow was probably more than enough to weird out the English. And we're told she actually did this three times, which is a lot, and it's also a significant number in certain magical circles. And as the old lady screamed and flashed from atop her tower, and I assume, as javelins and stones were hurled across the swamp, William's army advanced in formation towards the defenses of Ely. And waiting at Ely was Harroward, no longer dressed as a potter or a fisherman. He was now in his full battle dress. And he didn't look nervous. Why didn't he look nervous? Well, while William was building his towers and siege engines and, I guess, hiring experienced and angry exhibitionists, Harroward had been making his own preparations. Looking out, he probably couldn't believe his luck. William was still acting like he was in the fields of France rather than in the fens of England. Siege engines and towers? Are you serious? And they were so focused on this plan that they didn't even notice that they built their towers and machines in the middle of the reeds and brambles of the fens that, thanks to the summer heat, were now brittle, sharp, and dry. Their ignorance of the local terrain meant that they had placed their wooden towers and their causeway right on top of nature's finest kindling. So Harroward ordered fighters to hide themselves around the right and left of the Norman camp. 
and once William began his attack, they began lighting fires. And luck was on their side, because while the fires had started small, it was a windy day, and the winds were pushing directly towards the towers. It would have began as the faint smell of smoke, but soon the sound of, quote, the roar of the flames and crackling of twigs in the brushwood and willows, end quote, overwhelmed the scene. Even the Norman soldiers marching across the causeway wouldn't be able to miss something like this. And as they turned, they would have seen a quarter mile wall of fire rapidly spreading in the haphazard fashion that these sort of fires often do. And in a moment, the army was gripped by panic and the king's men broke and began running for their lives. And back on the tower, it suddenly occurred to the old woman that she was standing on a structure made out of wood and surrounded by kindling. This wasn't a siege engine. This was a pyre. She needed to get off this thing and run, like now. If those fires didn't get her, the Englishman that she'd just been flashing definitely would. It was time to go. But here's the thing. The Norman army weren't exactly focused on safety when they were building this thing. The goal had been speed, not compliance with OSHA. And so in her panic, the old woman fell from the tower and broke her neck. Meanwhile, the fleeing soldiers, quote, stupefied and greatly alarmed, end quote, were fleeing blindly into the marshes. They did their best to keep to the paths they'd used to get out there. But those fires were changing the terrain. So finding landmarks and trails was difficult, if not impossible. And that's assuming that they were level-headed enough to actually stay on those paths, which we're told they weren't. They were completely panicked and were running into an unfamiliar swamp in armor while surrounded by a rebel force. Yeah. It turned out that there were actually a lot of rebels out there in the swamp. And they had bows. So Ralph and his friends had been expecting an entirely different kind of battle. They brought hand-to-hand -hand weapons. So now, in the face of this kind of battle, they couldn't do much other than try and duck the hail of arrows while either running away or desperately trying to charge their enemies. And neither option was good. And quote, in consequence, very many of them were suddenly swallowed up and others, overwhelmed with arrows, drowned in the same waters, end quote. But William, who in his usual fashion had been watching the battle from the back, well, he'd seen this catastrophe coming and he'd managed to make his escape while many of his troops were still on the causeway. But even his retreat had been terrifying and dangerous because we're told that when he finally made it to his main encampment, even he had an arrow in his shield. He wasn't wounded, but it was a close call. And now he was 0 for 2 for taking the aisle by storm. And William knew exactly who was responsible for all of it. That f***ing witch. The record actually takes the time to detail William's tantrum, as he rages against Sir Ivo's eccentric elderly lady friend. But that was just the beginning of the meltdown. He also set about stripping the monastery of Ely of their income. And he wanted to do it permanently, 
forbidding anyone from rendering payment to them. Yeah, the king was big mad. But while he could tantrum all he liked, it wasn't going to fix this problem. It was becoming quite clear that he was on the losing end of this fight. The isle was too difficult to invade, and he was running out of time. Things at home had been falling apart, and it was bad enough that he'd recently been considering making peace with Hereward because he needed to be back in Normandy so badly. And that situation had only gotten worse as he and the boys were playing around in the world's worst water park. William needed this to be over, like yesterday. So he ordered his envoys to find a way to meet with the monks of Ely. And once there, enticed their support. And then he established a blockade of Buttscarls, fighting boatmen. No more messing about with foot soldiers in the marshes. Now this would be a true blockade. And Harroward would finally be cut off from the outside world. It was time to bring this to an end. And with that plan in place, William boarded a ship and headed for Normandy. He had a few things to sort out with Philip, the King of France. And if you'd like to hear a little bit more about this story, and also about some of the cultural implications it has, Z and I are just finishing up a shop talk, and that should be live on the members feed shortly. So now's a great time to become a member, and doing so is quite easy. Just go to thebritishhistorypodcast.com and follow the instructions for becoming a member. Thanks for listening.